Sunday school today, the Spirit bears witness with the Word in our hearts. We have begun our series on the Holy Spirit. We did a sort of systematic, historic overview last week, a very, very light version of that. And so we're going to walk through every mention of the Holy Spirit in our confession, and we're going to look to the, at the Scriptures. Thank you, Jared. We're going to look at the Scriptures underlying those, see how the Baptist Puritans utilized the theology of the Holy Spirit in their systematics, and hopefully we'll be able to draw some immediate application each week. This should be, help, should be helpful. So this week begins our, our official study. Last week we covered historical background and a basic systematic overview And today we will be studying the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness with the word in our hearts. If you want to, and if you have a confession, turn to chapter 1. Turn to chapter 1. Just get some... And the reason we're starting here with the confession, we want to see how historically this this doctrine has been used. And we're going to go to the scriptures and see where they went to prove these doctrines. So we're going to start in paragraph 4. The authority of of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. People say, oh, that's circular. Get over it. (laughs) Now, chapter, paragraph 5, and... I wrote above in mine, I said, how do we know what is scripture? Paragraph five, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the holy scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter and the efficacy of the doctrine and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, yet notwithstanding. So, pausing here, there's a semicolon. Pausing here. The reason that that they're doing this is a historical reason. Why? Because at the time that this this is taking place, there's an argument going on over who gives authority to the scriptures. And so on one hand, you have people that, that that, that say the church has no place to even talk about the scriptures. On the other hand, you have people that are saying, Rome saying, no, the church actually gives the scriptures their authority. And so this argument is basically saying, while, 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 the, while the consent of the church in its majesty and form, its consent, its harmony, these are all things that are good and true about the scriptures, but this is where the semicolon picks up, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. In other words, all of these these evidences are good, but the only way you will ever believe that the Bible is the word of God is by the inward work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. That's it. That is the only way. So in the first place, where does our full assurance of the scriptures as infallible and authoritative come from? Is it manuscript support? No. Is it perhaps somebody's evaluation of manuscripts? Well, this person said this thing about our manuscripts, so that that sounds good. I have faith in the scriptures now. No. Is it the church? No. We answer no to all three of these and any other thing. There have been a number of various arguments made for why we should believe that the Bible is the word of God, the scriptures, and all of these may be well and good. But if the Holy Spirit has not worked in you, you will not believe the Bible as the scriptures. You won't. Why? Why do we answer no to all three of these reasons? Manuscripts, text critics, the church. In the first place, manuscripts are lost, destroyed, and discovered. The authority of the scriptures rests not on how one manuscript looks like, or a handful, 
or any snapshot of those in history. If we base our authority of the scriptures on extant manuscripts, what happens when, when, the, when libraries are burnt down? What happens when the microfilm fades away? And all we have left is our printed editions. That will happen unless the Lord returns before then. And so we have, to, we have to put ourselves in a kind of humble place in history where the manuscripts are probably the least useful that they've ever been in the history of the church. Simple. Why? Because we're the farthest away from the time that they've been used. And so the second reason why we reject these three manuscripts, text critics, and the church. The second, text critics change their mind, adjust their theories, reevaluate evidence. So if, if our trust in the Bible is, is, is changing by the whims of, of, of scholars, where does that authority come from? Not God. And three, the church is ruled by man, and like text critics, changes her mind. And in the last two cases, text critics and the church, the primary reason is that nothing gives the scriptures authority but God himself. No man looks at the scriptures and says, that's authoritative because I say so. Simple common sense there. So our objective is today is to look at how God says he does that. If the scriptures are infallible, then they will tell us how they are infallible. And how we are to know they are infallible. If the scriptures give us all we need for faith and practice, knowing that the scriptures of the word of God is a part of that faith and practice, is it not? So we should approach the scriptures expecting them to teach us these things. And so this is, this is an interesting argument before we get into the text today. What, why am I assuming that the scriptures are infallible? We haven't even opened the Bible yet. Why am I assuming the scriptures are infallible so far? Obviously, the scriptures say so. That is reason one. Reason one for example, look at Psalm 12.6. The, the words of the Lord are pure words. The scriptures clearly say they are pure. But even if we say, well, well I'm not sure what the Bible says. I, I, I can't be certain what the words are in this thing. And I'm not certain that the Lord has told us that he's preserved his word. So an easy way to examine the foolishness of something it's to look at something, what, what, what's the implication if it is true, and what's the implication if it's not true. So by looking at the reality, if it is not true that, that the word of God is infallible, that is not true. But if I determine at the same time that the scriptures are the way that God speaks, and then say that that way of speaking isn't preserved and delivered, how can I know that anything I derive from the word of God is absolute? So... It's a, it's a vicious circle here. On one hand, someone would say, well, I don't know that the Bible's preserved. On the other hand, they say, but I believe the Bible says it's not preserved. Hmm. How do you know that that's what the Bible says if you don't think it's preserved? So when we approach the Bible, anybody that makes any claim about the Bible automatically ins- assumes its infallibility. They, it assumes its perfection. Why? Because you're drawing doctrine out of it. If you didn't trust it, you wouldn't use it. So it's hypocritical for Christians to then come and say, well, I don't think the Bible teaches that it's preserved. (laughs) Well, how do you know that's what the Bible teaches? So it's a vicious circle. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But some say that God doesn't promise in his word to preserve it. But in order to even say that, you have to assume that he's preserved it for you to know that. Or else you're just simply making things up. So this is an interesting counter-argument. So we approach the scriptures believing because, first of all, the scriptures say that we should. Second of all, we, we get there because the Holy Spirit's worked in us. And third of all, it's absurd. It's absurd to say that we can draw a doctrine out of a book that's not preserved. How could we ever know anything from it then? John Calvin says, quote, Hence the scriptures obtained full authority among believers only when men regard them as having sprung forth from heaven as if the words of the living God were heard in them. Institutes. Turn to 2 Peter 1, if you would. 
basically what Calvin is getting at here is that, that, that to read the word of God, the scriptures, as the word of God, you have to believe that they are the word of God. Simple as that. If you, if you approach the scriptures not believing they're the word of God, you will get nothing out of them but speculation and dead, cold orthodoxy. So we're going to go, we'll be finding ourselves in Second Peter here today. Second Peter 1.19, okay, here we go. We also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This is the key phrase right here. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. If you would flip over to 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. We'll start in verse 15. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Two points from these two texts. Scripture is given by God. Is given by God. And two, by way of the Holy Spirit moving men along. How much of Scripture is given by God? All. So all scripture is moved along, is inspired by God. God has spoken by way of his spirit in the scriptures. So this is our first teaching from today. The scriptures come from God, by God, for us. So how do we know this? How do we know as Christians that this is the word of God? If you want to turn over to John 16, 13. I believe we examined this passage last week, but we're going to look at it again and talk about how Christians just know things about God in general. What is the function of knowledge? Where does it come from? John chapter 16 and verse 13. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Why? For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. 14. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. 15. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. So who leads us to truth? The Holy Spirit. Who shows us truth? The Holy Spirit. Whose truth does he show us? His truth. God's truth. So how do we have this? How do we have this truth? How do we have this function? If you we're gonna flip around a lot today, but move over to first Corinthians chapter two. First Corinthians chapter two, after the book of Romans. will be in verses 10 through 12. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now, verse 12, now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us by God. 
So what spirit do we receive? Spirit of God. What does that spirit do? Show us the things that are given to us by God. Show the things that are given to us by God. We receive the spirit who teaches us. How does he teach us? Two proofs that we've looked at, two scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, we've established that all scripture is profitable for doctrine. What do we know that's true? Reproof, to know what's false. Correction, to be used to correct false from true. Instruction, to be used to teach what is true. Instruction in righteousness, matters pertaining to faith and practice. Is there anything outside of that, that realm that we've just discussed? Things that are true, things that are false. There's not really anything in between that, is there? All things. All scripture for all things pertaining to instruction in righteousness. Matters pertaining to faith and practice. So, and what's the purpose of all this? That the man of God may be, be perfect thoroughly, which means completely furnished for every good work. So this is our first, our first proof of how does, the, how does the Holy Spirit teach us? By the scriptures. Why? Because the scriptures say that they contain everything needed, everything needed that we may be perfect for matters for instruction of righteousness. Everything for faith and practice is contained with the scriptures. So this is also necessary by the unity of God. In salvation, we've done this proof a million times, but in salvation, the father draws and gives to the son. The son dies for those the father gives him, and the spirit applies to those the father draws and the son dies for. How does the son say we will be taught? The Holy Spirit. Who does the spirit proceed forth from? The father and the son. Who will the spirit testify of? We go back to John sixteen thirteen. Who does the spirit testify of? John 16, 13. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you the things to come. He shall glorify me, the Son, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All the things the Father hath are mine. So the, the Spirit's procession from the Father and the Son is, is integral into how he teaches us. Like he doesn't go off rogue and save people without the knowledge of the Father and the Son, that would split God. Like he doesn't do that, he doesn't teach anything that the Father and Son do not teach. So this is necessary by the unity of God that he proceeds forth from the Father and Son and he will testify of the Father and Son. How will he do this? The scriptures which are given by God. He will do this by the scriptures which are given by God. If we want to flip over to 1 John 2. 1 John 2. We're going to be in verses 20 and 27. 20 and 27. But ye have an unction, or an anointing, from the Holy One, and ye know all things. Go over to 27. But the anointing, that unction, which ye have received of him, abideth in you, and ye need not of any man to teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. The Spirit teaches us. How does he teach us? In the scriptures, by the scriptures, and in our hearts. These are the scripture references that our confession gives to us to point to their doctrine and their articulation of it. So our first point of doctrine of the Holy Spirit is this. The scriptures are given by God by inspiration, by the Spirit carrying men along. Those that believe upon Christ receive the Holy Spirit, And the Holy Spirit guides us unto all truth and teaches us by the scriptures. This is how we hear the voice of our shepherd, John 10, 27. If we want to, if you have your confession still at the ready, go back to paragraph 5, part 2 after the semicolon. After the semicolon. Yeah. 
Yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. By and with the word in our hearts. The only way we have full persuasion is by the Holy Spirit, who bears witness by and with the word in our hearts. Christians, by necessity, must first believe that the scriptures are inspired, preserved, and given to even begin using the scriptures as an article of faith. They must assume those three things. In other words, you must be a believer. You must be a believer. Christians can only believe this by the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe the scriptures are the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit and no other means or mechanism. That is why when you place your faith in some other mechanism, when that mechanism changes or fails you, what also will change and fail you? The scriptures will, because they're not set on a sturdy foundation, an infallible persuasion, the Holy Spirit. So that that is our theological foundation of the Holy Spirit as it pertains to the scriptures. How does this work practically? How does this work practically? How do we actualize this doctrine when we read the scriptures we read with the holy spirit and in prayer this is this is something that maybe us reformed folks are scared of doing but when we read our scriptures we should be asking the holy spirit to help us to show us things to give light to our mind to teach us why do we do that because christ says that that's the holy spirit's role in us says he will teach us So this is what the Holy Spirit's going to do. So why would we not ask the Holy Spirit to do that in us? Every time we open scripture, we should be asking the Holy Spirit to teach us. That is the first point of application today. So don't be so reformed that you neglect to ask the Holy Spirit to help you. He is the ordained teacher to the saints. Second, read the scriptures knowing that it is God's word. This is probably one of the most common things that Christians don't do. They open the scriptures and they're trying to find some moral truth in it. They're trying to find some practical, how do I live my life sort of thing in here. And that's how a lot of churches even teach the scriptures. Say, they they look at parables and they look at stories from the Old Testament. You know, are you David or Goliath? Are you the, you know, and they do these sermons and and they're, they're so devoid of exegesis that even if they interpret the story like Calvin did, which is that, yes, you were David. They get it wrong because they missed the whole point of the passage. And so many times our pastors teach us how to read the scriptures by the way they preach the scriptures. And so when we approach the scriptures, we approach them as God's very word, knowing that God is breathing in the scriptures for you. Herman Bavink famously said, The scriptures are God-breathed and God-breathing because they're alive, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Do we read the scriptures as though they are a dead document, dear church? Or do we read the scriptures hungry for something? Hungry for the same truth to, to, to brighten up from the page and speak something afresh to you? Three, know that the scriptures are harmonious because God wrote them. So this is, this is the modern trap, right? This is the modern trap. Well, 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 Paul was really getting at this, and James completely separate from Paul. They're saying two different things in Matthew and Mark. This is, this is kind of the common way to teach New Testament, especially hermeneutics now. They say, well, well what is James saying different from Paul? They do this. They pit Paul and Peter against each other. They pit James against everybody. And they say that, that these, were the, the, these were different faith communities saying different things to different people. And we have to understand them in isolation of each other. Wrong. Wrong. We are Christians who believe in inspiration. What does that mean? That the Holy Spirit is the proper author. So when we say, for example, when we say, for example, that the Gospel of John was written by the apostle john right we say that just because he wrote it does not make him the author 
And this is a, if, you've, if you're ever reading a book, you can tell how liberal it is. If, if they say, John is the writer of John, or he's the author of John. Author implies that you thought it up yourself. So we say the Holy Spirit is the author properly, and that the apostle, the writer, was the instrument or the organ of the Holy Spirit. This is classical, historic, reformed doctrine. And so when we read the scriptures, we should expect there to be harmony. Why? Because God wrote them. And so if there's a matter of something that we don't understand, why does God use this number here and this number here? It is a problem of our facilities, dear church, our mental faculties. Not the problem with God. And, and this is, this, we have to fundamentally approach the scriptures as they are written by God, authored by God, authoritative by God, harmonious because he authored them. And if we approach it trying to find problems between the gospel stories, then we're going to find problems. Why do you think Jesus spoke in parables? So his sheep wouldn't hear his voice, or the people that were not his sheep would not hear his voice. There, I'm, I'm convinced there are many things in scriptures that, 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 are, that are things that must be overcome by faith. For example, the fact that we have no complete New Testaments for the first 400 years of church history. Why do you think God did that? So no man would ever come along and say, we need to re- reconstruct it. So know that the scriptures are harmonious. God wrote them. There are no contradictions in scripture. If you approach the scripture believing this, you will not find any contradictions. You will go and you will seek the truth. You will seek the harmony. You will seek the voice of your shepherd as he spoke them to you. If you want to turn to 2 Peter 3.16, we'll start in verse 15. So there's a very common modern argument that's going around, essentially. The scriptures can't be perfect because we can't understand them perfectly. This is how you know the public school system has failed. This particular individual, uh, actually I've heard these two. One of them is a Cambridge man. And actually, two people from Cambridge, I've heard say this. One from South Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. PhDs, masters. They say, where the scriptures are not perfect because we can't understand them perfectly. How foolish. Anyway, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit foresaw this ridiculous argument and authored these words for us. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our bu- beloved brother Paul... So Peter talking about Paul here. Also according to the wisdom given unto him hath written unto you. As also in all his epistles speaking in them of these things. In which are some things hard to be understood. Peter says Paul is hard to understand for some people. Oh then Peter is clearly saying the scriptures aren't perfect. No. That is not what he's saying. Which they that are. What does he say? It is the problem with the person understanding. Next part of the verse, it says, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. So what does Peter say about this argument? They're unlearned and unstable. People who think this way. Who corrupt the script, who twist the meaning of the scriptures. So in this, we can pull out the, 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 basically a counter argument. And we say, no, just because man's knowledge is fallible does not make the scriptures fallible it doesn't follow it's not a logical argument so this is common so simply because we don't understand something does not make the scriptures fallible it makes us fallible so when you approach the scriptures and you can't understand anything your thought should be i don't understand this it's like the person that 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 blames literally every bad thing in their life on someone else So our job is not to pit scripture against scripture. It is to hear God's voice and be examined by it. This is how we must approach scripture, dear church. We cannot approach scripture as as academics, as scholars. I don't care if you have a PhD from wherever institution you want to go to. If you do not approach the scriptures as a child believing, you will not hear anything in them. Our job is not to determine what is and what isn't scripture. It is to receive scripture and be taught by it, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Simple as that. 
And when we, when we forget that, we, we end up being syllable counters and word counters. There's a, I've probably told this story before, but there's a, there's a terrible anecdote about a man that goes to prison and he's given a Bible. And every day the guard walked by and saw him just reading through it and reading through it and reading through it. And he was, it seemed as though he was taking notes and notes and notes. And the guard was like, man, this guy's really getting a hold of this Bible. And I asked him, I was like, what, what have you learned from that Bible so far? He says, well, there's 5,000 nouns and 635 letters A in the book of Luke. And he was counting the words and the letters and all the, the, the parts of speech. Didn't read a single word. That leads me to some objections and thoughts to consider. We can't know that the scriptures are perfect because we can't know anything perfectly is a dumb argument. This is an extreme form of skepticism, and this results ultimately in knowing nothing. This is actually the argument that people say that, that kind of make the matrix, the matrix argument, that we're living in a simulation. Well, we can't know for sure, so we could potentially be in a computer simulation. We don't know. There's actually a lot of good evidence to believe that we're in a computer simulation. Extreme forms of skepticism are birthed from this kind of logic. If you don't believe that you can know anything, then you can literally know nothing. It, it's an absurd form of skepticism. We know, for example, that God is perfect, even though we don't know his perfection perfectly. That doesn't make God any less perfect, because we can't understand it fully. And so the difference here is, is, is that our fallibility does not negate the scripture's infallibility, because our fallibility is not considered when God says that his word is pure and perfect, it is perfect regardless of what we say about it. Right? And, and I hope we're following that logic. And when we say these kinds of things, that because our knowledge is fallible, we can't, the scriptures must be fallible, we, we, don't, we don't mock ourselves. We're not, we're not being humble. We're mocking God. And, and that is something that we have to remember. We're, we're, we're saying something about God, not ourselves. God's word is perfect. And, and one of the objections that people say is that, well, God's word is perfect, but it's not the only way he's speaking today. Right? The Holy Spirit is giving us private revelation, visions, dreams, tongues, prophecies, words of knowledge. And so this one's particularly challenging because I would say about 70% of Calvinists in Arizona believe this. And... Most, most uh, particularly by influence of Matt Chandler, who has been advocating for this doctrine for years. Basically, as you, he, he, the, the doctrine goes like this. You should pray that the Holy Spirit gives you new revelation, new words, so you can tell your brothers and sisters in Christ these new words so that they might be encouraged by them. This is being taught all over the valley. I can name probably five churches that are doing this. Calvinist, quote-unquote, churches that do this. Because anyone who follows the sort of mainstream Acts 29, New Calvinist kind of system, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's what they do. Very, very, very common. Daddy, did you have something? So, to the law and to the testimony, if you speak not according to this, you're not saved. Right. So that's the, that is the objective statement. Yeah. Well, and what they'll say, and what they'll say to this, I love that this, this is how they do it. They say, well, if the prophecy agrees with what the law and the prophets say, then, then, then it's fine. And so how do we, how do we approach this? Well, we, we, there's a simple syllogism, a little, little proof that we say. We say if a prophecy, word, or tongue agrees with Scripture, it's unnecessary. And if it does not agree, it is not of the Holy Spirit. Simple as that. That's, that's more or less John Owen's argument against it. Ongoing revelation further disrupts the unity of God and makes the Holy Spirit yet again a rogue agent. Because I tell you, I have never heard anything true from a word of knowledge. I've been prophesied over a lot. Been prophesied over, there was a moment in college where I kind of got caught up in that stuff. Um, it's, really, it's really quite dangerous, actually, because uh, we teach that assurance of faith comes from Christ and his work. They teach that assurance of faith comes by miracles and feelings and, and words of knowledge and, and charismatic stuff. That's why it's so dangerous. That is why the, the Pentecostals 
church's back door is wider than the front door. Exactly. Right. It's a different spirit. Exactly, exactly. So this is the challenge. In the same way that that the Holy Spirit does not apply salvation outside of the Father and Son, he does not speak outside of the Father and the Son. And how does God speak? By his word. And in these last days, it says in Hebrews 1, 1, through his Son, Jesus Christ. So by saying that God speaks outside of his scriptures, we are calling him a liar. And we're calling God actually three gods. Or perhaps you have a bi-unity, and and it's tritheism at its worst. When we say that the Holy Spirit goes off as a rogue agent, because he disagrees then with with the Father and the Son, making God three gods. And so that's a problem. That is something that people don't realize about the unity of God is that the second that you find a, a, a disunity, then, then any, any time that you can say God is not unified, he must be disunified and thus be more than one. And that's the problem with it. That's why the unity of God is so important. And so he does not communicate new truths that are not in the scriptures. The scriptures are sufficient. And if it is not contained in the Holy Scripture, that is to actually say that God spoke fallibly Why? Because he didn't get it right the first time. He has to speak to some hipster with a man bun in Tempe and a nose piercing. That's his messenger. Some guy named Elijah. Finally, the biggest question. I would say that that today, the biggest challenge to the doctrine of the, the, the proper doctrine of the Holy Spirit working in the word in our hearts the, 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 the two biggest challenges are Pentecostalism and modern textual criticism. Why is that? Some say this. They say, I believe in God that God's word is perfect, but I don't know what that word is. Thus making the doctrine of inspiration utterly useless. Utterly useless. It's a, it's a pointless doctrine. If we don't know the word that is inspired... It doesn't matter how much we give lip service to that doctrine. Because it's useless. You could say, yeah, I've got a Ferrari. Don't know where it is. But it's out there somewhere. I know I've got one. It's out there. What use is that Ferrari to you? You'll never drive it. You'll never look upon it. You'll never use it. In the same way, if we say, yes, God's word is perfect and pure and preserved, but we don't know what it is then it's a useless doctrine to you. It's a useless doctrine. And so, basically, they, they, they come at it this way and say, the word is perfect, but I don't know what that word is. Which readings and which verses, which Bible should I read? And this was essentially Rome's question to the Protestants, quad verbum. Which words? And, and this is a huge problem. It's, it's a sign of the age of reason, I believe. In other words, what external mechanism of authentication are you going to use to show me that the Bible is correct? That is what someone is asking when they ask you, well, which words are God's words? What mecha- mechanism of authentication are you going to show me to prove it? Rome says the church. Most say textual criticism. You look at Ligonier, you look at the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, that's what they've put their, their faith in. And so some, rather than going into, we, we, we've beaten the subject of text criticism down to the ground of this church. So talk about this problem, problems to theology. How is this theologically problematic? When someone points to and says that, that I need an external mechanism to show me which words, the mechanism then takes authority over God's word. Why? Because the mechanism can fail. The mechanism of God giving his word to his people is that which is governed by providence. By providence. Not man's determinations. Hebrews 1.3 says, upholding all things by the word of his power, down to the hairs or lack thereof on our heads, Matthew 10.30. So if God knows just how bald I am, then he knows just how many words are in scripture 
how many words are supposed to be there and how many words are there. So what does this providential, this providential mechanism look like in time? We know, we know back to the Reformation is a good place to look, the biggest Christian revival in the world that's ever happened in history, the first time the printing press is used, the first time that, 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 that Bibles go forth in every vulgar tongue. And those vulgar Bibles essentially are still the most popular Bibles in every single country they went forth into. That, that to me sounds like something a man could never orchestrate. That's providence. And so the, the Bibles that were produced during the Reformation were received by just about everyone. Just about everyone. Germans, the Dutch, the French, the English. Everybody. That's providential. You couldn't organize something like that if you tried. You couldn't pay the evangelical church enough money to pretend to do something that organized. And so God's providence obviously doesn't stop there. You look at the, at the Reformation era Bibles, still today the most read Bibles in the world. In the world. And so if, if we reject the, that text the, from the generation before us, we're in big trouble. And so the reformers had this doctrine where they said that, that the, the responsibility of the church in every age was to hand down the scriptures in time. And so that was their assumption, that they were receiving the word from the previous generation. And, and what, so what do you have to do to, to, to attack this? You have to basically say, well, God hasn't preserved his word because that's wrong, because we know better now. And that's what you have to do. And essentially jettison yourself into a cycle of never knowing what the word of God says. And there's no Bibles that are perfect or God's word. And that's where they're at today. I mean, Dana and I have this conversation. And this is where it's very practically practical for you guys. I would say 99% of the, the Calvinist community believes that there are no Bibles that are, that are perfectly translated. And when we say perfectly, they, they are accurate to the original languages. So if that's the case, we're in deep trouble, dear church. Because how can we hear God's voice if there are no Bibles that we can read that have his voice in it? And people don't think about the theological implications of that. How will we ever know God's word then? How will we do it? If we reject God's providence in this way, we all know what happens. 500 Bibles... No one knows what the real one is. Of the ones we have, there, there are five updates of each, constantly changing. The scholars are saying, quote, we do not have now in any of our Greek texts or translations what the prophets and apostles wrote. And even if we did, we would not know it. So that's where we go if we reject providence, if we reject the power of the Holy Spirit working in his church every generation to preserve his word, then we get in trouble. And so that is how this, do this doctrine works with the Holy Spirit. So because in every generation, there was a generation of elect believers, right? It's the idea of continuity of God's church in every generation till the last day. The, the Matthew 5.18, this is an application of that passage. So in every single generation, the Holy Spirit spoke to the church by the word of God. Meaning that in every generation, there were people that knew what the word of God was. And so the only real mechanism to know what the scriptures are, the exact form of them, is what were we given from the last generation. That's the Bible that is ours. And we can see, and God has, and then, and then you go to the confession, and, the, and then you look at the, the majesty of the, of the form, you look at the efficacy of the doctrine, the, the harmony of all the parts, all these. But in no way, shape, or form is it a reformed doctrine to point at manuscript evidence. Simply not found. After giving internal arguments for every line of scripture, it, what did they do? They assumed that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they said, the grammar flows here, the doctrine is theologically accurate, oh, and the ancient manuscripts have them. Say, so, and that too, I guess. So what, did, what was their chief... What was their chief doctrine? That God has given his word, and we are to believe it. And, and so that, that ends our presentation. Some takeaways, and then some questions. In this first lecture, we learned that the Holy Spirit inspired the text of Holy Scripture and carried along men as they wrote it. 
The Holy Spirit is our teacher who works in the scriptures and in our hearts. In order to believe the scriptures are the word of God, you must be born again by the Spirit in Christ. We can have full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and authority of Holy Scriptures by the Holy Spirit. We can know. You can know that the words that you are reading are the word of God. Some application. Do not fall into the trap that evidence will give you assurance. Read the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can watch a, a presentation on, on how we, and we know for a fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And then you'll find 50 million other presentations proving that one wrong. Don't put your hope in evidential arguments. Two, ask the Spirit to guide you and teach you, to work the word in your heart. And three, read the scriptures and apply them to yourself. Be taught by them. They are for you, the bride of Christ. Amen. Any questions before we get out of here? Yeah, guys. Point number three, all it do is to them get a good understanding. Yeah. There's a, that is at point three, is by yeah. doing that, you can know them to be true. Yeah, amen. Jake? Sure, yeah. And wrote in two churches, mm-hmm. right? And I'm sure those churches received it, you know, with its apostolic authority as basically the word of God, right? Yeah. So I guess like if, if you're a text critic then, would you say if we found one of those writings, would that not part of the Bible? Or like what would I'm just trying to understand kind of their, their end of Sure, yeah. So there's there's two there's two ways to approach this. And in the first place we don't actually know that Paul wrote other letters. Um, why do we, how do we not know that? Because the letter to Laodicea, for example, could have been the same letter he sent to Ephesus. So it could have just been commenting on, oh, the letter sent to Laodicea, and we, we just don't have one addressed to Laodicea. The actual content of it could literally been any one of Paul's letters. Uh, so that's that's the first point. The second point is is that 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 is very well likely. Because the, because the text critics have no sort of sense of a closed canon, um, then yes. If, if we found a manuscript with, with another chapter of John in it, if we found a, man, a completely new book, it could end up in a Bible, yeah. It could. Um, I, I would argue that it's not because we just haven't had it preserved. Right, so the argument from exposure. God didn't preserve it, so therefore it was never meant to be preserved. Right, exactly. So this is, Michael Kruger talks about this argument, basically. Like, even if there was 50 other letters from Paul that we don't have today, God didn't preserve them past the first century, and so they were never meant to be a part of canon. They're not for us. Yeah, they're not for us. They do. Right. Right. So the so so any text you know without we call it the modern critical text because it's the only text that is changing today. Uh, a, a changing text necessitates an external method of authentication, whether that be higher criticism or neo-orthodoxy or uh, Pentecostalism, charismatic, you know, charismaniac kind of stuff, uh, or perhaps the textual scholars. Now, the, the major problem with this is that textual criticism is actually the only one of those that doesn't work. So, for example, theologically, charismatic belief works. I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to me out of the scriptures because I feel so. Neo-orthodoxy works. The scripture becomes... God's word when I read it. That works theologically. Um, Higher criticism works technically. You know, these were just different faith communities expressing themselves differently over thousands of years. That works. Text criticism doesn't. Why? Because text criticism can't figure out what it said. 
It's the only one that theologically doesn't work. Now, we wouldn't say that we would say that higher criticism and neo-orthodoxy and charismatic uh, interpretations are all heterodox. They're not orthodox, but they, but they actually theologically fit. They're not inconsistent with, with the changing text. The only one that is inconsistent with the changing text is both saying that the Bible is inerrant and infallible and inspired, and also we don't know what it is. That's the only one that doesn't work. Yeah, read the scriptures and apply them. Be taught by them. They are for you to do the bride of Christ. Jake. I have a comment also. Yeah. I think it's possible possible that we're overemphasizing often charismatic ministry and that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Actually, uh, it depends on what kind of charismatic you are, I suppose. The ones I knew in college really were, were big fans of trying to figure out secret wisdom in the Bible. Yeah, they were not really familiar yeah. with that. Basic, basic neo-gnostics, yeah, that's right. So are they it? Um, not in any way that we would we would figure out. Any other so questions or comments? What's up? Interesting parallel there between because you you looked at the Passion Manuscript, which I'm working on now. Uh, yep. And the author for that, which I'm not going to butcher, um, he said that God sucked him into his ethereal areas. He was visited by an angel. Right. Yeah, so the, the Passion Translation, so-called, is not a translation. For every probably five Greek words, there's about 30 English words in it, meaning they take some translation license and add their own thoughts into it a lot. Yeah, it's not, it's not even a paraphrase. It's, it's just a corrupt version of God's word. Any other questions, comments, concerns, points of clarification? Excellent. Hopefully today has been helpful. The, the, the major thing I want this church to take away uh, is that the Holy Spirit works in the, in the scriptures and in your heart. Right. Read your Bible that way. Live your life that way. Do not approach the scriptures as a skeptic or believing that, that they are not powerful to work in you. Because they are, and they do, and they will. Amen. Amen. All right, let's get out of here.